So as, as Dean and I have been preparing for the, the parenting class, it, it kind of swerved into this, uh, this study that we're going to be in for a little while as we spend time together in God's word. Specifically, it swerved into it because it kind of looks at family, right? Parenting classes should look at family, hopefully. But the way in which it intersects the the scripture that we're going to be dealing with is a little bit interesting. And, And it leads to some questions about the family of Jesus, Now, I know we sing songs or have songs, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. That's not what we're talking about. We're we're talking about something much more specific. And so I want to ask you, have you ever considered the earthly family of Jesus? What would it have been like to grow up in the same house as Jesus? What what would it have been like to be in the same family as Jesus? Can can you stretch your mind far enough or your imagination far enough? In just a brief moment, I'm not wanting you to spend a lot of time there, but, but can you consider what would it have been like for you to be one of Jesus's siblings? Now, some of you are only children, and that's okay, and some of you have more people in your family than you want. But, but when you stretch that out just a little bit and you say, what, what would it have been like? This mic is driving me crazy and I'm very sorry. It's just killing me here. Okay. What, what would it have been like for you, knowing how you were, are, as a sibling, to be Jesus's sibling? Now, some of the younger folks that are in here right now that still have siblings and they're still at home together, I'm getting this kind of uncomfortable thing from them, right? Imagine Jesus being your older brother and you would think, wow, that would be awesome, right? You, you might have trouble though wrapping your mind around that a little bit, but it's a reality. And, and in, in scripture, it was a reality for four boys that we know of. And, and two girls, possibly even more than that. And, and to be sure that as we kind of talk about this, we're, we're wading into an area that's kind of fraught with danger. Maybe, maybe not danger, but, but speculation, because we know very little from the record of Scripture about the family of Jesus. Specifically, their interactions and, and those kind of things as a family. Well, what we do know is that after having Jesus through the miraculous work of God by his spirit, Joseph and Mary went on to have a regular family, at least as much as that was possible, having had Jesus first, right? A regular family with kids. Luke indicates in chapter 2, um, the, the, the verse notating Jesus' birth, right? And, and, and when he notates Jesus' birth, he makes the comment that he was the firstborn son of Mary. Now, he has no reason to say that if there weren't other children that were born to her. Remember, it's being written after the facts. 
Added to that, we've got parallel accounts and and passages in Matthew and Mark regarding the family, and and it's testified to by the people that were actually from Nazareth. This is what it says in Matthew 13. When Jesus had finished these parables, this is later in his life, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogues so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and, and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas or Jude and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? So the family unit, at least at this point in time that we can count, if we give the fact that the daughters or the sisters were plural, so there's at least two of them, right? Then then we're looking at a family of about nine, Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus was in a family of about nine. And and though it's large by today's standards, except in some areas, it, it, it wasn't uncommon in those times, right? Because Jesus was born of God and the miracle performed in and through Mary, Joseph was not Jesus's biological dad. We know that, right? Jesus' brothers and sisters then would have been technically his half-brothers and half-sisters as they had the same mother. Now, how many of you have really spent any time considering all this stuff? Raise your hand. Okay, there's like six people. Good. It's fun. It really is fun because sometimes we get more interested in the stuff we can't find in Scripture than the stuff we can. It makes us hunt after it and do those things because it, it leads us to questions that are, that are sometimes fun to deal with but unanswerable. One of our guys a couple weeks ago was talking to me about his Bible study. And as he was talking to me about the study, he was telling me, he said, Pastor Dave, this is just, it's bringing up all kind of questions to me. I, I mean, I'm studying this, but then I'm wondering, how did this happen with the disciples? And how were they able to go with Jesus on these times? What happened to their families and all this? There was this, there was this tie in there. It was pretty cool having the conversation. Of course, the questions he was asking, I had no answers to, because we don't in some of those ways. But there are questions that I would like to know. There are. Like, when was the second kid born? Right? When, when was the second kid born? How many years separated Jesus and his first sibling? How did Mary and Joseph tell the story to their kids of the birth of Jesus? Right? I mean, can you imagine having to sit down? I mean, we have trouble telling our kids stories about their grandparents and what they did. You know, grandpa was in World War II or whatever. We have trouble to imagine sitting down with your children and trying to talk to them about the birth of their older brother. Did Jesus look like Joseph? Right? I mean, these are questions I have. I don't know what questions you have, but we've got none of those answers, and yet... We do have some additional details that help us, like in Hebrews, where the writer declares concerning Jesus that although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. 
This statement kind of builds on an earlier statement when the writer says in chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with all our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And though brief, this is a major insight into Jesus, but also into his family life. I, I don't know what age I was at when I was first tempted to lie. I want you to think about you for a minute. What age were you when you were first tempted to lie? The only one that I can really remember is when I was about eight. I won't tell you what it was. doesn't matter. But I was tempted at eight years old to lie. And I did. Jesus didn't. I also remember when I was first tempted to steal. How many of you would admit today that you've been a thief in your life? Raise your hand. Thank you, because I just didn't want to be alone up here when I give my example of my thievery. But I was, I was tempted to steal, and I, I remember the, the moment that it happened. I remember where I was. I remember who was with me, and I even remember what it was. It was a chunky candy bar. Anybody remember chunky candy bars? Yeah. You can still get those in the specialty item stores for old people, right? <laughs> I was tempted to steal this chunky candy bar, and you know what? I did. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't. Now, added to this story, Jesus' mom never made him go back to the 7-Eleven and take the candy bar back and apologize to the manager and pay for it and then give the guy back the candy bar and you didn't even get to eat it. <laughs> I, I digress just a bit. Do you realize, though, that according to Scripture, this means Jesus was tempted with everything a child might be tempted with? means that Jesus was tempted with everything that a teenager might be tempted with. He was tempted with everything that a young adult man, a young adult woman, might be tempted with. He was tempted with everything that a grown man would be tempted with, yet without sin. I believe that sometimes we only look at Jesus' life from a particular perspective, maybe often because since most of his life in Scripture takes place as an adult, we, we see it from that perspective. But in doing so, I think we forget when temptations to sin first come in our lives. It doesn't wait until we're older. I don't know about you, but that, that is really helpful to me as an adult. And even as a parent when I was training my own children. The statement, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, becomes a lot more valuable and usable in those moments. Back to his family. Jesus lived as the son of Joseph and Mary from the day of his birth. And as the other kids were added and they all lived together in a family just like we do, the only difference was we live with a bunch of people who say they are perfect. 
Nobody? Really? You don't have anybody in your family that thinks they're perfect, that thinks they don't do anything wrong, that they never make a mistake, that they're always right about everything? They want us to believe they are perfect. Jesus was. Now, I, I can imagine that, that there are a lot of different thoughts, but, but I can't imagine what it would have been like to live in that environment. A brother who never lied, never cheated, never stole. And, and, and the pressure that would have been there to live up to that standard. Anybody who has an older brother or, or someone older than you that you look up to and, and you're constantly trying to strive to be like them, uh, you, right? You, you constantly, they're, they're holding the bar and, and when they hold the bar too high, it just becomes futile and it becomes difficult and sometimes you even abandon it. How, how would I have reacted in those moments of time what pressure might I have put on myself in that type of family environment? Again, all speculation. And I'm not sure that we can answer it, but I, but I can imagine that there would have been some sibling rivalry of some kind. And, and that's not a new term. It goes back to the beginning of time. Remember when there was sibling rivalry right at the beginning of time. A good picture of it, though, is the story of Joseph, right? In Genesis 37, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a multicolored tunic. His brothers saw that. Their father loved him more than all the other brothers. And so they hated him. And could not speak to him on friendly terms. Wow, that's tough. And as we read on, we know that what leads this story leads it into some pretty tough places for Joseph and, and some pretty wicked and evil places for his brothers. We, we don't have any record in the scripture that Joseph or Mary treated Jesus with favoritism, or even that his brothers or sisters hated him in some way. But we do know that from early on, though he grew up like every other child, he was not like every other child. Luke reminds us of that from the start. In Luke 2.39, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. The child, Jesus, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, if you want to know that he was a little bit different from most children, how many of you have ever said of your small children, they are increasing in wisdom? In the very next verses in Luke, we see the special challenges of raising and being part of the family of the Son of God. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, he went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, supposing him to be in the caravan, when a day's journey... And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Now, we don't know how many kids were in the family at 12, right? At, at Jesus at 12. 
But families were often very close together in age, in the culture. And so would it have been a stretch to think that there were three or four or five kids at that time? Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Difficulty in the family. Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Good parents. They recognized he was gone a day after, right? I mean, I can't even imagine how much trouble I would have been in had I lost our kids for an entire day. He said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, being that he was only 12 years old at the time, we we don't know the number of siblings. But there is no way that this event did not affect this family in some way. Jesus knew who he was, and he grew, and, and, and as he grew, it would become more and more apparent to his family that Jesus was different. And, and yet, after such a remarkable event that, that didn't change the fact that he was part of this family unit or the son of a carpenter, and, and he would have younger siblings looking up to him for at least the next 18 years of his life. And he continued in subjection to his earthly parents. Unlike the example that some older brothers can be and the influence they can have, Jesus was perfect. One author writing on this said, He grew into all those points and experienced the temptations that are common to each of those ages connected to these maturing features of life. The difference between Jesus and others was not that he had some kind of abnormal development. The difference was not that he was void of temptation. The difference was that he faced, like everyone, every temptation. He was tempted in all points like as we are also, and, and he was touched with feelings of our weaknesses. The difference was he never sinned. He was like no one who ever lived He never had a bad attitude. He never disobeyed his parents. He never complained about dinner. He never bickered with his brothers and sisters. He never lied. He never entertained an evil thought. He never said any evil word. He never gossiped about a friend. He never slandered an enemy. And here's one. He never wasted a moment of his life. In every situation, through every form of temptation, at every level of development, his entire life, he was absolutely sinless. He always triumphed over every temptation of every kind, and he learned experientially through the battles with temptation to be obedient to his heavenly Father in everything, all the time, absolute, holy perfection. 
Now, you may listen to that, and, and you may see in this author's perspective a little bit of conjecture, but on the points that are dead-on accurate to Scripture, it had to make it tough for those Jesus was living with. I mean, imagine this. Mary says, Okay, who ate the last bit of bread that I said no one was to eat? Nobody ever looked at Jesus. <laughs> now imagine if you were in the scenario where you were the brother standing next to Jesus and it was Mary asking only the two of you. <laughs> they knew he would never disobey. Joseph might have said, hey, hey, you ruffians, who beat up the kid next door? Nobody looked at Jesus, right? James could have been standing next to Jesus when Joseph said it. And James is like, oh, man. Why? They knew Jesus was not mean. He showed kindness. If they were standing next to Jesus alone in those moments, they could have never, ever, ever used the phrase, not me. I did that all the time. Some of you may have done that too. You couldn't have done it in that environment. And as I thought about this and, and, and this perspective and, and parenting, I don't think I could have helped myself. Jesus would have been my favorite child. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, you would have told all the rest of them, I, I love you too, honey. I, I love you too. Yes. But talk about no-brainer parenting. This would have been it, except for the fact that you were raising the Son of God. But there are many myths and legends regarding Jesus and what he did as a child, a teenager, a young adult. In fact, I, okay, I got to tell you, I did go back and look at some of these things. I mean, some of the conjecture and some of the speculation never found in Scripture, not, not in any way with the authority of Scripture or whatever. Some of the things are amazing that were written years following Jesus in order to try to spice up, you know, his, his life or whatever. But the scripture records no, no supernatural things, no miraculous things until after he began his ministry. In fact, this part of his life seems to be other than his increasing in wisdom and stature and with favor of all men, it seemed pretty normal. So much so that as he began his ministry, those that had grown up around him in his town, his neighbors, they, they did not see him as anything Special and, and especially not as the Messiah, the Son of God. Remember what we read in Matthew earlier when they said, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not his mother Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judah? Judas? Jude? And, and his sisters? Are, are they not all here with us? There, there was no falling down and worshiping him in that moment of time. There was, there was no overwhelming sense that he was something uh, awesome and great and, and the Messiah of God. But this was just the neighbors, the, the town folk, right? Surely it would have been different with his own family. Those who had watched his life, 
Did you ever watch your siblings trying to catch them getting in trouble? No? Okay, I guess I'm the only one. These are the people that would have been influenced by his goodness even when they picked on him and did him evil. These would have been those perfectly loved by him. These would have been those he never sinned against. These would have been those he always forgave when they sinned against him. This is what the scripture records as the events of of Mark 3. And it gives some insight to us into Jesus' family. In in verses 1 through 6, it's talking about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. He entered into the synagogue. There was a man whose hand was withered. He watched him and and, and all of these things. And he says, get up, come forward. Um, and, And they said to him, is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill? But all the people kept silent. And after looking around at them, he was grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hands. And immediately the Pharisees, of course, conspired to kill him. The second thing that we see in Mark chapter 3 is in verses 9 through 12. The people followed him and he healed many and he cast out many diseases. In fact, when he dealt with the unclean spirits, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. The last thing we see is in verse 14 and 15. And this is when he chose the twelve that would be with him, that he could send out to preach, that he could send out with authority even to cast out demons. After all this, this is what Mark records. So there's, there's been the sequence of events, Jesus you know, dealing with the Pharisees, Jesus healing people, Jesus choosing his 12, and all of a sudden it, it, it shifts over into this moment and it says, and he came home. And the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. Now, we don't know what the house looked like. We don't know exactly where it was positioned in the town. But we know that what was going on was after Jesus had had healed these people, he had cast out demons, he had confronted the Pharisees, he he had done all these things, he he comes home. The crowds were such that he could not even take a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. Now, that phrase translated lost his senses is a little kind because it has the idea behind it of to lose one's mind, to be beside oneself, to be insane, right? We find out about 10 verses down who his own people were. His mother and his brothers arrived and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. So going back to this, he's sitting there. He can't even take a meal. There's all these people around. His family hears about what's going on and, and, and they decide that they're going to go grab him and bring him out of this situation because in some way he's lost his mind. There's been books written with the theme, um, Liar, Lunatic, or Lord, right? Where they take this particular portion of scripture and they, they expand on it to what the people could have actually thought concerning Jesus. 
What Scripture makes clear is that Mary knew who Jesus was, and it was consistently on her mind and in her heart. She was told prior to his birth in Luke 1, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will be great and call the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him a throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. This is what Mary was told, given a promise that when this baby was born, that she could not have ever expected to have in this way. Once that promise was fulfilled, she would know. And she did. So Mary was with this group of his own, right? And his own was Mary and his brothers. Mary knew who he was and who he was going to be. So that just leaves the brothers. And though they lived with him, they saw his life every day, were the recipients of his goodness, knew he won each battle with temptation that he faced even when they couldn't. With all that, they were no different than the rest of the people. John would later record their unbelief in this way, chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Now, some context here helps us a little bit. What was going on in in this moment in John was the feast that all the Jewish males had to attend. Jesus' brothers were not supporting him and saying, hey, we're behind you. We know who you are. You're you're exactly, go, man, go show them, go show them. They they weren't behind him. We find that out at the end. They They were challenging him in some way. Maybe maybe they wanted to see for themselves if he could do the miracles as he claimed were being done through him or as people claimed. Maybe they were hoping the religious leaders would confirm whether or not he was the real deal, right? Maybe they were just mocking him. Maybe they were taunting him, hoping that he would go there and finally fail so that they could feel better about themselves. Right? Again, that's a little bit of speculation on my part. But whatever their motives, what was clear was that they did not believe in him. When Jesus first started his ministry, his brothers thought he was out of his mind. And now, that he's nearing the end of his ministry, they thought he was out of his depth. So why does all this family background matter? It matters because one of the brothers in the list of those who did not believe wrote Jude, who like his older brother James, who wrote a letter and and became part of the canon of scripture. Jude was was like James and and the rest of Jesus' brothers, 
not placing faith in him, not believing in him while he was alive. In fact, the account we read earlier regarding their disbelief was only eight months or so before he went to the cross. So they were firm disbelievers all the way to the end, living with the perfect Son of God. It was only after the crucifixion and the resurrection that we find Jude in a place to receive the truth about Jesus and with those who had already believed, Acts 1. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, Sabbath day's journey. When they had entered the city, they went to an upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Altheus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Something powerful had taken place. 33 years of denial. Jude could no longer be in disbelief. Jesus had risen from the dead. And he wasn't trusting that account of the risen Christ to to just anyone's words to him. His older brother James was an eyewitness to the fact of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, Then to all the apostles. Can you imagine that moment in time for James? Can you imagine the overwhelming nature of what Jude and his other brothers experienced in that moment of time? Why had they not believed? Why had they not treasured like their mother did in her heart the things concerning him? Why did, not, why did they not see the, the wisdom? Why did they not see the, the, the perfection? Why did they not see the, the difference? Jude finally saw clearly. And the truth concerning Jesus and, and by the Spirit of God, he was led to a place 
where his faith was secure in Jesus. And for Jude, his life would never be the same. We don't know what he did. He was the son of a carpenter, so did he work in the carpenter's shop and do all of those things, which, by the way, it was more stonemason than it was you know, working with wood, but that's okay. What did he do? What, what was his vocation? Where, where, I, I don't know, but his life at that point would never be the same. We find some pieces of information on Jude from Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. From that writing, we know that he traveled much like the apostles on their missionary journeys, and he did so for the sake of the gospel. We know from what he would later write that as he did this travel and as he did engage in the gospel, his faith and his commitment to the truth concerning Jesus became paramount in his life. And, and contending for that faith when, when bombarded by ungodly influencers when allowed to turn the grace of God into a life unrestrained, when, when encouraged to desire more and more pleasure, when applauded for accepting Jesus as Savior while denying Him as Master and Lord. The word contend that is used in Jude actually carries with it the idea of the need to defend the truth continuously and vigorously. Not as in taking up a shotgun. The word translated here is where we actually get our word agonize. So it gives you an idea of something that, that, that bothers you deeply, troubling you, and, and it troubles you to the point of action. When truth is assaulted, Jude could not sit idly by. When, when he saw the ungodly things that were being done by people claiming to be godly people, he could not sit by. Because he could testify as an eyewitness to the fact that that's not how Jesus lived. That's not how Jesus spoke. That's not how Jesus acted. As we will learn as we dive into this writing, Jude wanted to write something completely different than what he ended up writing. The Holy Spirit led him to give the church both then and now a lesson in the dangers of, of following ungodly influencers. Who, who make their way into the church, into the family of God. And, and though it may not have happened exactly in Jude's day as it happens in our modern era, because in our modern era, the person or persons doesn't even have to walk into our building. Through the access that we have with technology, the teachings, the books, the devotionals, the sermons, the podcasts, the posts, the stories, the reports, the twittering, all so many methods to provide opportunity for true faith to be undermined. 
what we will be reminded of in this time together is that there is true faith. And there is false faith. We will be called in this time to recognize the difference and to identify both clearly. And we will be called to that by somebody who saw it with his own eyes, did not believe it until his eyes were truly opened, his ears could truly hear, and he knew that he knew that he knew. We will be called in this time to action. And Jude will give us the tools to do so. I'm going to ask our team to come back up and we're going to finish with one song together. Jude is a brief writing. It's 23 verses long. It's the same length as Philemon. One's a little bit longer if you actually read it than the other. One takes about three and a half minutes. The other takes about five minutes. It's incredibly short compared to all the other New Testament writings, even the letters. But it's incredibly valuable. So this is what I would like you to do this week. I want you to prepare for next week. And and I would like you to read through Jude all 23 verses. Okay? All 23 verses. And as you read... Would you kind of process it through what we talked about today? The family of Jesus. Jesus, the older brother. Jesus, the one seen and heard and not believed. Jesus, the one who proved what is true and what true faith means. Jesus, who was then followed by these same ones that would not believe who would later proclaim to the church there's true and there's false there's belief and there's not it's worth believing it's worth being of the truth there's a lot out there as you guys know There's a lot out there that would like to sidetrack and shipwreck faith. We have to stay close to Jesus. Let's stand together as we conclude our time. Ross.